We are continuing on, uh, on in our sermon series through the New Testament book of Acts this morning. We're looking in chapter five. And so if you have a Bible and would like to turn there or a phone app or the passage will be on the screen as I read it. Um, but the book of Acts, as we've been seeing, is all about what Jesus is continuing to do in this world after he has died and risen from the dead and then ascended up into heaven. Uh, Jesus is still presently at work in our world by his Holy Spirit and through his church, gathering people from all kinds of places to be part of his people. And he's doing that despite all kinds of different external opposition and internal conflict within the church. And the passage that we're going to look at together this morning is going to focus our attention specifically on what some of that external opposition looks and feels like. So when we were in Acts chapter 4, we saw the beginnings of the persecution that the early church began to experience. And here in Acts chapter 5, we're going to see kind of the second wave of that persecution and the fact that it's continuing to intensify. And that's actually going to be a theme that runs through the entire book of Acts, this opposition. And yet, in the midst of that opposition, God is continuing to cause the gospel to advance. The question I want us to think about as we dive into this portion of God's word is how are followers of Jesus, Christians, uh, to think about the opposition that we face? Specifically, how should the church respond in the face of opposition? So this morning we're looking at Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 42. This is God's word. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now, when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the Senate of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council and the high priest questioned them saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, 
we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, even Jesus. We know that this is your doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that you, Lord, have made. And so we ask that you would let us rejoice and be glad in it and that you would use this part of your word as we look at it together to help us to be more joyful people, joyful about proclaiming the good news that we've been given, joyful even in the midst of various types of opposition that we might face. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the last few weeks, the conflict that's been going on between Hamas and Israel has given us a very real and tangible picture of what hostile aggression looks like, what it's like to face opposition. And we've actually been seeing that for several years in the war in Ukraine. And the reality is that in so many parts of our world, there are so many people whose lives are impacted by war. And when you face the loss of property or a loved one, or even your own life, it forces you to focus in on some of the most pressing questions in life. Like what is most important in this life? What am I really living for? And then maybe what, if anything, would I be willing to die for? What might I have to lose? What is my hope? Hearing about physical wars taking place in the world just gives us imagery, a picture of the spiritual warfare that is actually taking place all of the time, whether we think about it or are aware of it or not. There is real spiritual warfare that's going on all of the time. There are forces that are hostile to Christianity, to Jesus and the gospel. 
And maybe you get glimpses of this or experience this as you listen to the news, or maybe as you have interactions with some of your friends or neighbors or coworkers. This passage in Acts shows us the early church as it was experiencing opposition and persecution. And the question for us to consider is how should followers of Jesus think about that kind of opposition? How should we respond to it? Should we respond with, with fear, with desperation, with frustration, with despondency? Should we try to fight back? Should we try to grab onto political or cultural power so that we can be in control? Well, we're going to walk through this passage together um, and, and, and focus on some different mile markers as we go. And the first thing that we notice, the first thing we're told in this passage is that there was great work being done in the church by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was doing a great work in the church. Luke gives us in verses 12 through 16, one of his several summary statements that tells us kind of what was going on in the life of the early church. And he says in verse 12, now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. Verse 16, the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. In the previous chapter, chapter four, the early Christians had prayed to God for boldness in speaking about the good news and also asked that God would, would give visible signs and wonders that would authenticate that message that they were communicating. And here we see that God is at work answering those prayers, that there are visible signs and wonders that are being done. People are being healed, uh, healed of physical disease, healed of spiritual disease. And those things are authenticating the words, the message of the gospel. So there's a great work being done by the Holy Spirit. But people are responding in, in some slightly different ways. There are some people, we read, who, who didn't join them, who were intimidated by what they were seeing. I mean, last week we looked at how a couple people got killed. Um, that's kind of intimidating. And so people were keeping their distance. Um, but others were attracted and they were drawn in. These miraculous signs and wonders were authenticating the message of the good news that the, the apostles were preaching. And so in verse 14, we read, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So what's taking place is that people are inviting their friends to church. They're bringing their friends to church where they are encountering the message of Jesus and the gospel. And people are being healed. People are being physically healed, which is a sign of God's power to bring total and complete salvation and more than ever, people are believing in Jesus and becoming part of the church. And so what that reminds us of is the fact that because the Holy Spirit is present in his church, including right now, today, in this church, God is at work in our midst. And so we should be regularly inviting people to come and to encounter Jesus and the gospel with us. And we can expect that people will respond in lots of different ways, that some will continue to be intimidated and, and keep at a distance, but that others will be attracted and drawn in. 
as people are invited into the community of the church, we can expect that just like in this passage, some people will believe in Jesus and receive new life, become Christians, and the church will continue to grow. So we can expect that God is still at work and will continue to be at work by his spirit in the church. That's a given. But the other thing that we can expect is our second mile marker, that there will be great opposition to the gospel from outside the church. We see that beginning in verse 17. Luke tells us, but the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, this is why they're doing what they're doing, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. So now the authorities show up. The high priest and this group of religious leaders called the Sadducees, these were kind of the wealthy aristocrats. They were the ones who regularly were in cahoots with the Roman government. Theologically, they were ones who denied the existence of angels and denied the resurrection of the dead. But here in verse 17, Luke tells us that the driving force that was causing them to do what they were doing is that they were filled with jealousy. They were filled with jealousy because of the popularity of these apostles, these followers of Jesus, and the growth of the church. Something was at stake for them. They were experiencing loss, were fearing experiencing loss. And what was that loss? It was the loss of their power, their position, their influence, their place. And so verse 18, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. So we see simultaneously that God is very powerfully at work in his church by his Holy Spirit, growing the church. At the same time, there is great opposition to the gospel. And then third mile marker, we see that God is at work protecting in the midst of that opposition. So in verse 19, God acts to release the apostles from prison and he does that by sending an angel who opens the prison doors and leads them out and tells them specifically, verse 20, go and stand in the temple and speak to all the people the words of this life. The words of this life, which mean the words of salvation, the words of eternal life. And so they do that. Verse 21, they go to the temple at daybreak when it's opening for morning sacrifices and they began to teach. And so when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, uh, all the Senate of the people of Israel, which is the Sanhedrin. So the highest court in Judaism. And verse 22, when they sent to the prison to have the apostles brought, they were told that the prison cell was empty. Verse 23, we hear this report, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. They weren't sleeping on the job, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. And so eventually somebody comes in verse 25 and says, look, the men that you put in prison, they're actually now standing in the middle of the temple and they're teaching the people. And so the officers go off and they arrest them for a second time, this time not with force because they're afraid of being stoned by the people. And the high priest questions them, verse 28, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And the reality is that we see in this passage, there has always been and there always will be opposition to the gospel. Specifically, we see it coming from outside the church in this passage. The gospel has been opposed and it always will be. 
And it's the success of the gospel and the growth of the church that actually incites this opposition. It's healthy church growth and gospel growth in people that causes the enemy to go on the attack. And that could be scary and that could be negative, but let me encourage you that it's actually a sign that God is at work. If you play sports um, and you're a receiver or you play basketball and, and you find yourself being double teamed, they put two defenders on you. You could be frustrated and you could say, well, this stinks. Like this is gonna make things so much harder for me. But it could also be a huge encouragement because you think, I must be a real threat. They must be worried about something. And that's, that's what we should be thinking as we are experiencing opposition, that God must be at work in our midst, threatening the powers of darkness. And that's what's inciting them. So if God is at work in our midst, we can expect opposition. And here the religious leaders are jealous and it leads them to put the apostles in prison. In fact, a clear statement of the gospel by the apostles um, actually fills them with rage to the point that they want to kill the apostles, we see in verse 33. They're jealous, they're threatened. And I wonder who there might be in your life, maybe in your family, in your school, your friend group, your workplace, that you might expect to be threatened by a clear statement of the gospel, by the truth that Jesus is God and he came into this world in order to die, to pay for the sin and the wrongdoing of people like me and like you. And that actually the only, the only way to have real lasting life and satisfaction is through believing that Jesus did that for me, for you. Who might be threatened by the idea that Jesus is a savior and a king who calls us to follow him and to orient the entirety of our lives, all of our priorities around his kingdom agenda. I mean, that, that message bumps up against many of my natural desires because it means that I can't live my life the way that I want to. And there's many people in your life, in your school, in our city, who will fear the loss of power or place or their lifestyle if Jesus and his gospel are communicated and more and more embraced by more and more people. And so what that means is that those people who are known to be Christians, who talk about Jesus and the gospel, are likely going to experience opposition. And it could look different for you, depending on what your particular context is, you know, for some of us, we might actually at some point in our future experience something similar to what the apostles are experiencing. It might be that at some, someday, uh, some of us might actually experience prison or the threat of prison because of what we are communicating about Jesus and the gospel. But probably more likely for most of us, it'll just involve being looked down upon, maybe ridiculed, Maybe treated with contempt because our beliefs are more and more being seen as offensive or even harmful. Or we may feel excluded, shut out from, from friend groups, from circles at work, 
We might feel kept at a distance. And all those experiences, whatever they might be, will be painful and uncomfortable. But the reality is that there has always been opposition to Jesus and the gospel, that it's nothing new. And in fact, God has always been at work growing his church, um, not just in spite of, but even through persecution and opposition. We'll see that play out more and more in the book of Acts. And so what that means is that there's no reason for followers of Jesus to fret, to worry, to doubt that God is at work when we experience suffering and opposition. Fourth mile marker is that what we see in the midst of this opposition is that God extends grace to those who oppose him, to those who most vehemently oppose him. So right now the disciples are on trial, being charged with continuing to communicate about Jesus after they've been strictly charged not to. And in verse 29, Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. Now, ordinarily Christians are told in the Bible to submit to whatever authorities, whatever government have been placed over us because it's God who puts those authorities in place. Peter himself would later write in 1 Peter 2, verses 13 and 14, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Paul writes in Romans 13, beginning in verse one, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. And so the basic principle in the Bible is that we are to submit to whatever authorities God has placed over us. But as we see in this passage, when those authorities either command us to do what God has prohibited, or as in this case, when they prohibit us from doing what God has commanded us to do, namely here to speak about Jesus, then we, like these apostles, must obey God rather than men. We cannot simply decide to not speak about Jesus. Now, certainly I know that some of you work and engage in various contexts where you have limitations or where you need to be careful. And obviously we need to be wise about the circumstances and the way in which we speak about Jesus. But the baseline is that we have to speak about Jesus. That is what we are called to do if we're followers of Jesus. And so Peter and, and the apostles in verse 30 say, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. And so they're very clear in saying that it was Israel's God, the God of our fathers, the God of these Jews who raised Jesus from the dead. So God, the Jewish God, is, is at work through Jesus. And he says, whom you killed, highlighting the fact that they share in the guilt of Jesus's death. And it wasn't just a generic death, but he specifically says, by hanging him on a tree. And all of these Jewish people would have been very familiar with the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, which in chapter 21 says that a hanged man is cursed by God. It was a very specific type of execution reserved for criminals that indicated that God's curse was resting on them. 
And so the Apostle Paul writes later in his letter to the Galatians in chapter 3, 13, says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, curses everyone who is hanged on a tree. And so what's taking place here as the apostles are on trial, as they are facing these people who are very hostile toward them, who are opposing them, what are they doing? They're sharing the good news of the gospel. That Jesus died on a cross, and in doing so, he took the curse of God upon himself, and he actually bore that curse, God's curse, for everyone who believes in him. Peter writes in 1 Peter 2.24 that he himself, this is Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. That's substitutionary language. Jesus's death, his wounds are what enable you to be healed. He takes the curse so that you can be redeemed, set free. And they continue verse 31. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior. Why? The purpose? to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And so what the apostles are talking about is one of the gospel events, Jesus's ascension. So the gospel events are things like Jesus's death and his resurrection, and then his ascension up to the right hand of God, the father. Um, And we're told specifically the function of that that God exalted Jesus in order to give repentance and forgiveness of sins. So those things are, are God's gift, enabling people to repent, to turn from sin and turn to God and be forgiven. And the apostles say, verse 32, and we are witnesses to these things and so is the Holy Spirit. So even, even as they are in kind of one of the worst situations that you can imagine where you're brought on trial and you're, you're feeling like your life might be in danger. Even as they're standing on trial, through their words, God is extending his offer of grace and forgiveness and new life to those who are most hostile to him. Jesus was exalted in order to offer forgiveness to the very ones who nailed him to the tree. The grace of God extends to his enemies to those who are most hostile, most opposed, most against. Even right now, the offer of forgiveness is being extended to them. And if you think about it, you don't get much more hostile to Christianity than being responsible for the execution of Jesus, the Son of God. That's pretty against Christianity. That's not very neutral, but killing Jesus is pretty pretty against Christianity. And yet, These are the very ones to whom God is extending the offer of grace and mercy. And in order for us to be a part of that, to to recognize that God's grace really extends to the worst enemies, we've got to be convinced in ourselves that it was my sin that held him there, held Jesus there on the cross until it was accomplished, till all of my sin was paid for. But what that reminds us is that no one is out of the reach of God's grace. 
And that has to influence and engage, the way that we engage and communicate with people, particularly those who are hostile to the gospel. And there are so many people who are. I was at, as, at a conference just the last few days at a, a theology summit, and, and the topic was about how our culture has shifted and views of selfhood and the individual have shifted and the way that that has enabled us to, to embrace all kinds of different views of personhood and sexuality that, that would have seemed unthinkable, uh, you know, decades ago. The culture's changed and that could incite so much fear and worry and pessimism and a sense that the ship is just sinking. And yet we're reminded that opposition to the truth of the gospel is nothing new, that Jesus is and always has been at work. And so verse 33, uh, the religious leaders have just heard the offer of good news, but they, they don't embrace it. Um, they don't say, what wonderful news. Could we pray and receive Jesus? They actually said, when they heard this, they're enraged and they wanted to kill them. But verse 34, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, who's a, a well-respected rabbi who we learned later in the book of Acts was actually the teacher of Saul who became the apostle Paul. This respected rabbi who's a Pharisee intervenes and he calms everybody down. And then he cites two examples from recent history of revolts that didn't go anywhere where a revolutionary leader rose up and gathered a group of people to himself. But then that leader was killed and all of his followers scattered and disbanded. And he cites those examples and he says, look, look, we can expect that probably something similar is gonna happen in this case. Yes, we're all frustrated about this, this Christian movement, but Jesus the leader has already been killed. And so we can expect that this, this group, this movement is probably gonna dissipate pretty soon. And so verse 38, in the present case, I tell you, Keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. And so he's advocating kind of a just a wait and see approach. And this actually is probably not the best approach for us to take in responding to who God is and what he's doing in the world. It's true that ultimately plans that are only of man and not of God will ultimately fail and that God's plans ultimately cannot be thwarted. But in the near term, in the short term, what we often see and experience is that very evil and wicked plans seem to succeed for a long time, sometimes for decades and centuries. And that sometimes plans that seem like they are right in line with God's will, that are clearly what God would desire, don't actually materialize and be successful. And so what we really should encourage others to do as they are looking at Christianity, looking at Jesus, is to consider the claims of Jesus and whether these things are true and particularly the resurrection and whether that is true. But Gamaliel doesn't, doesn't take them there. Um, the council takes his advice and, and now we see, mile marker four, the apostles having an opportunity to experience the joy of speaking for and suffering for Jesus. And so in verse 40, the apostles are called in and we're told that they beat them. So possibly uh, 
using a whip, a leather whip made out of three strands of, of calf leather uh, that was twined, intertwined together and being, being lashed possibly the, the 39 times, one less than 40, they would have received two lashes on their back and then one on their chest and two on their back and one on their chest till they got to 39. That would be an excruciating and horrible experience. Not only painful, but shameful. And yet how did they respond to this beating, to this suffering? I know what I would be thinking. I'm gonna go gather my friends and I'm gonna come back and we're gonna burn down the high priest's house. We're gonna kick some high priestly butt or let's raise a militia. Let's overthrow these religious leaders. Let's overthrow the government. And yet that's not what we see them doing at all. In fact, what we see them doing in verse 41 is that they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Are we willing to suffer any sort of pain or discomfort for our witness to Jesus? Are we willing to, in any sense, be weak or seen as weak, to lose or be perceived as losers? What would we have to believe about Jesus and the gospel, who Jesus is for us, what he's done and what he continues to do and will do, what would we have to believe in order to be willing and, and able to rejoice even as we experience suffering and dishonor? I mean, how do we typically respond when we feel like we're being oppressed? My natural inclination is to want to bow up, to fight back. And we should ask, why is it, when we, when we feel like we are experiencing some opposition, why is it that we are being opposed? And, and what is it that is being opposed? Is it Jesus and the gospel and my communication about him? Or is it just my preferences or my comfort that are being opposed or threatened? Or am I just being a rude jerk? And that's why people are responding to me the, the way that they are. But even if we are faithfully following Jesus, and especially when we are, we can expect to experience opposition. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Tim Keller wrote that a vital church gets persecuted. If we get no persecution at all, we are probably not living consistent and courageous Christian lives. The reality is, if we are followers of Jesus, is that we follow a crucified king, one who looked like he had lost, one who suffered and then died. But Peter writes in 1 Peter 4, 13 and 14, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And so after they were beaten, these apostles were charged not to speak in the name of Jesus. They were told that again. And yet Luke tells us in the last verse of our passage, verse 42, what they, what they did. Every day in the temple. So uh, every day, all the time in the temple and from house to house, everywhere they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ 
is Jesus. That's what they talked about. That's who they were. That animated the whole of their lives, wherever they were, whoever they were with. People knew what they thought about Jesus. So the question for us is, do people in your lives know that you are a follower of Jesus if you are a Christian? Do the people in your workplace, in your school, in your neighborhood, in your friend group, do they know that you are a Christian? And how would they know? You don't necessarily need to wear that on your t-shirt, Although in the 1980s, I did have some pretty ridiculous t-shirts, Christian t-shirts that had Bible verses that were radically taken out of context in order to support, support some kind of catchy slogan. You don't need to wear a t-shirt, but, but people should in some way, because of how we speak, know that you are a follower of Jesus. Not speaking in an annoying or an overbearing way, but just as a part of who we are, because it's a significant part of our lives. Our priorities and our rhythms are shaped by the fact that we follow Jesus. We get up on a Sunday morning and we get in our cars and we drive to be part of a church worship service. And people can see that and we can talk about that. So who are the one or two people in your life who right now need to hear about Jesus? Who are the one or two people in your life who presently need to hear about the grace of the gospel of Jesus? Who needs to be encouraged to trust in Jesus as the only and the ultimate source of life and hope? And then ask yourself, are there things that are keeping me from speaking about Jesus? And if so, what do we do about that? When we find that we are feeling intimidated or we're feeling apathetic, what the Bible encourages us to do is to pray. That's exactly what these apostles did at the end of chapter four in Acts. They prayed to God asking him to give them boldness to continue speaking the truth about Jesus. So we should pray. Let me also encourage you that you don't have to do it alone. The church is created, established as an evangelistic community together, which means, which means that we strive to be a place where Jesus is regularly talked about, where Jesus and what he has done, the gospel, is presented in lots of different ways as both beautiful and believable. And so we promise you that if you invite your friends into this context, we will talk about Jesus are there people that you might consider inviting to connect to this church community in some way? Whether inviting them to a worship service or maybe your small group or maybe starting out just by inviting them to something social with, with a handful of other Christian friends. People bringing their friends into contact with the church community is God's plan that we see played out in the book of Acts. It's God's plan for reaching new people with the gospel so that they come to believe in Jesus and become a part of his church. And that's our mission together. And the reality as we see in Acts is that it's not easy and we're never promised that it will be easy, but we're also promised that Jesus is with us, that he's working in our midst through his spirit, that he will not 
leave us. And because he's at work, by his spirit in his church, drawing people to believe in him, we can rejoice because we know how the story ends and we know he's working in us and through us, even as we are opposed and sometimes especially through our suffering together. Let me pray for us. God, we do thank you that you have promised never to leave us, never to forsake us, that you've given us your Holy Spirit who lives with us and in us and is at work right now. And so Holy Spirit, we pray that you would give us a strong sense of your presence with us. Give us eyes to see what you are doing in our midst. Give us hearts to believe and give us boldness to speak of the hope that we have in Jesus. And we pray that you would be at work through us gathering other people to taste and to see that you really are good, that Jesus really is the source of life. We pray this in his name. Amen.